Well, good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing good. Enjoying a good day. Good to see you guys. You guys sounded great. It's so good to just be able to like not sing for a second and then just hear you guys sing. It's just a reminder of what's to come. And one day, hopefully, um, all of us are together on the shores of heaven singing just like that, praising God for who he is and magnifying him as one, as a family. And speaking of family, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about before we really dive in to the message today. Here at MCC, we don't just want to create a really cool show that you can come in and watch and see, and then you go out and you feel like maybe you're better or, or maybe that was like a box you checked, but we really believe that in order to truly experience what, experience what it means to be a part of the family of God, you have to experience that with the family of God, lo and behold, and to actually experience that through the body of Christ here lived out. So what we don't want is for people to just come in and to see what happens on a Sunday and then go out and, and live life. And so some of you here today, you're kind of new and um, that's been your reality. You've came in, you've gone out and you've kind of seen it and experienced it. But our hope is that you would get more and more connected. And because of that, we're doing uh, what we do periodically here at MCC called Connecting Point. Connecting Point is where that connection happens so that nobody ever gets to this place where you say, well, that MCC place, that was great but I never really got connected. Well, this is where that actually happens. It's gonna be April 30th. That's the last Sunday of this month. And this is for people who are somewhat new to MCC, whether today's your first Sunday or you've been coming for about a month. If, as long as you haven't been to one of these yet and you're within the last like six months, you're, you're new. Again, I'm not talking to you like, some of you are like, man, I just wanna get a free lunch, man. Like, how do I get to go there? I'll pretend like I'm new if I have to. No, that's not for you. Um, so if, if you want to be a part of that, and you are somewhat new, uh, I think there's, yeah, text breadsticks to 770-450-1555. You're texting breadsticks because we're going to have breadsticks at the thing. Um, Olive Garden, is their motto is when you're here, you're what? Family, okay? Ours is the same. When you're here, you're family. And so we want to partner with Olive Garden and you and, and have a free lunch right after the second service on April 30th. If you want to be a part of that, please text that. We'd love to have you guys here for that, all right? Our passage for today is out of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 14 through 18. I'm going to read it to you and then we're going to walk through it. This is the word of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that are bound up in these short few verses that we read. Father, bound within these verses are the most powerful realities that have ever existed in the universe. That there was the power of life, but also the power of death. But in steps Jesus and brings the power to destroy death through his perfect life. And Jesus bound within these verses is the gospel. And I pray that today more than anything else, more than any story I may share, more than any point that would be made, your people would hear the gospel. The gospel alone has the power to radically change and transform lives. And I pray that more than anything else, it is you, Jesus, who is lifted up. You tell us in your word that when you are lifted up, you would draw all men, all women, all children, everybody and anybody unto you. And so I pray 
that the person who thinks they're maybe here for an accident or they're here for, you know, just for a one-off open stance, that they would too know today that you brought them here for this moment, for this reason, whether we've heard the gospel for years or today's the first time, it is supposed to change us and draw us into you. So I pray that your love connects your people to the very heart of God this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So what I want to do before we really dive into verse 18, verse 18 is really the passage that we're going to lean in today where he talks about uh, because Jesus himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help us when we're tempted. We're going to be talking about temptation, how Jesus helps us today. But before we get there, I want to make sure we're all on the same page of where the pastor who's writing to this church, this is what Hebrews is all about. It's a pastor writing to a church, trying to help them, encourage them. I want to make sure we're all on enough of the same page so that we can get where he's going and how he's expanding this and elaborating on this. So let's check it out. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So what all that means right there is Jesus is like you. That in order for divinity, that's God, to save humanity, that's us. Divinity had to become humanity. God had to become a person to save us people. And so that person who is God, who becomes a person is this guy named Jesus. And Jesus comes here and he lives this life here on earth. And it says that he goes through the same things that we are going through. Part of what the author of Hebrew does, probably better than, in my opinion, any other book in the entire Bible, is help us understand not just the divinity of Jesus, but also the humanity of Jesus. And how Jesus, as both the son of God and the son of man, one of us, is actually one of the most intriguing and life-changing aspects of who he is. And if we can not just experience, oh, well, you're God and that's awesome that you're God. And I feel, you know, like a loser because you're God and you do all the things that I don't do. But if I can really realize, wow, you also know exactly what it's like to be in my shoes and to walk where I've walked and you have actually experienced life here, then that has the potential to radically change our lives. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to help the people he's pastoring the same way I'm trying to help you understand that Jesus knows what it's like to be you, that he walked through the same things. That through death, because again, if you're a human, you're gonna do what humans do, which is be born and then die. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Let's hold up, stop with man, make sure we understand what in the world he's talking about right there. So again, last week, Easter, we asked this question, well, how in the world does Jesus destroy death through death? And how does Satan have the power over death? Let's just start right there. How did Satan have the power of death? Well, what it's not saying there is Satan could just, you know, when he gets mad at you because you have a really good week and you don't commit that sin habit that you have been struggling with for years, you go a week without doing it. Satan's like, ah, oh, I really hate that. And he just like looks at you and laser beams you and you die. That's not what that verse means when it says he has the power over death. What it means is, and this is the reason I highlighted the word has. See, Satan knows God's rules and regulations. Satan knows and understands that when God created humans, when he created Adam and Eve in the garden, he told them to not eat from this tree that is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of this. And he told them, if you eat of this, you will surely what? Die. So from the very beginning, what happens is God, not Satan, God connects sin and death. And when we sin, death is the destination we go to. Now, Satan knows that. When it says that Satan is the one who holds the power of sin and death, what Satan is holding is the proof that you in fact are a sinner. 
And so we talked about this last week. He has a file on every single person in the room. He has one for you and one for me. And some of you are thicker and some of y'all are smaller, but everybody's got a file and there's something in everybody's, okay? And what he does is he wants to be able to, on the judgment day of your life, be able to stand before God and leverage God's rules against you to both hurt you and to hurt God so that you're separated from this God who created you to perfectly be with him forever. So Satan can stand at the end of your life and go, okay, let me, okay, who is this again? Okay, uh, Billy uh, Simpson, let me pull out his thing. Okay, Billy Simpson, we got, uh, you really want me to read that out loud? Okay, we, we all know. I mean, he's got a file on everybody. And what he wants to do is case closed, death and hell, separation from father, because nothing brings him more joy than you spending eternity fully separated from your father, God. Now, when this verse says that Jesus through death, by death, destroyed the one who holds, has in his hands the power of death. What that is saying is that Satan held this against you. He had his file against you and he was holding this against you because he knew that this sin would lead to your death. But what Jesus does through his death, burial and resurrection is he takes everything that Satan was holding against you and it becomes what is held against him on the cross as he dies for the sins of all mankind. So now, if you're in Christ, that means Satan now has nothing to hold against you. But, and this is where it's like, okay, where it had to go somewhere, it all goes to Jesus. And he bears the weight of the weight of the sin of all mankind, takes all that punishment on himself, on the cross. Though he is perfect without sin, he destroys the one who has the power of death so that in you, or that in him, now Satan has no power. When he stands up to give account of why you deserve to die, the folder is completely empty because everything that should have been in it was on Jesus, all right? So that's what it means that he destroyed the one who has the power of death. And then it goes on and says, and because of that, so we don't have to fear death anymore. He says, he delivered all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what he's saying here is because at the end of your life, you no longer have to give an account for your sins if you're in Christ. Now again, Satan's one job is to get you from being forgiven. Because Satan, again, when it says the one who has the power of death, Satan can't kill you. Satan can't get you to hell. The only thing that can get you to hell is unforgiven sin. That's why his one job is just to keep you from a savior. And so now that we know if we're in Christ, hell is not our destination, then I don't fear standing before a perfect, holy, righteous God because I know that my sin, though it was scarlet, has been washed white as snow, and now I am justified because Jesus took on all of my unrighteousness and all the due punishment for my sin. All of that's upon him as he who knew no sin becomes my sin so that I can become righteous before a holy, perfect God. Guys, that's the gospel, and it's bound up in these verses. Now, he goes a step further, which is awesome. Yeah, it's kind of important. Um, verse 17, he says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers. He's continuing to unpack this reality and truth that Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Made like his brothers, not in some respects, but in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And he does that for because he himself has suffered. This is our verse for today. For because he himself, that's Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, temptation, temptation, what I love about it and hate about it, it, it is the great equalizer. 
this side right here does not struggle with temptation more than this side right here. And vice versa over here. Everybody in the room, the great equalizer is everybody who is sitting here today with a butt in a seat, with a pulse, everybody who's watching online. We all have to face temptation. And so most all of us, I would say, have already faced temptation this morning. Anybody willing to raise their hand? All right, yeah. Look, you probably faced it even in the building, right? Let's all just be honest. Why we faced it here, all right, in the house of God. Like we experience it everywhere we go. Temptation. Temptation to go, uh, you know what? We stayed up way too late last night. The kids, you know, got me up in the middle of the night or I shouldn't eat Indian food on a Saturday night. I'll never do that again. Like I can't go to church. You know, like we have all sorts of temptation. We all face it. And temptation, though we can joke about it here, it really is no laughing matter because the temptation leads to the sin and the sin is what separates us from God. So we've got to come to this place where we go, okay, I need help in my temptation because my temptation is what leads to sin and sin is what leads me to not experience what life is truly meant to be in connection and relation to my holy heavenly father, his son, Jesus, and the ultimate guidance of the Holy Spirit. So let's walk through this verse by verse to try to understand why and how Jesus can actually be someone who can help us in the midst of our temptation. Because at the end of the day, we don't want just help in our temptation. We want to be able to resist temptation and experience who Jesus is. So Let's talk about this word first, tempted. This is a word that shows up twice. It says Jesus was tempted and then we are being tempted. So in order to understand this word tempted, I think it's important that we know what this word really actually means in the Greek. The Greek is originally the language that uh, the Bible was kind of translated into and Greek words oftentimes have multiple meanings where our English language translates it and only means one thing. Uh, The Greek word here for tempted is a little bit more multifaceted than just the word tempted. It's this word pyrazo, all right? Can we say that together? Pyrazo, pyrazo, all right? Pyrazo is that Greek word. And not just meaning tempted, it also means tested or put under trial. So when you read this verse, it, it more so could read Jesus suffered when he was in trials. Jesus suffered when he experienced trials and temptation. Oftentimes, if it works, it works. This word pyrazo, it really implies that it's both and, that it is both temptation and trials. And we know those things are different. Trials, that's like, hey, um, we live in a place where a tornado blew our house apart. Well, there's no temptation in that. That was a trial that we experienced in life. Cancer, that's a trial. A prodigal child, well, I'm not tempted necessarily in that. That's a trial of life that I'm experiencing. Temptation is a different thing. I shouldn't have looked as long as I looked. I shouldn't have gossiped. I should have kept my mouth closed. I shouldn't have blown up and been angry. I was tempted and I did those things. Two different categories, but both are a result. Track with me here. Both are a result of the fact that you and I live in a broken, sin-scarred world. Sin is what affects the trials and the tribulations we feel whether it's cancer, bodies falling apart, natural disasters, or it's the temptation for the evil that already exists in the world. So when it says Jesus suffered when tempted, it's not just saying Jesus suffered when he, you know, was tempted to look longer than he should have, or he was tempted to, you know, hold back some money when he should have given it, or to, you know, not give uh, uh, an advice when he you know, should have. Like, that's not just saying that, it's also the trial part. And this is where we can come to this place and go, oh, okay. But how does that mean, or where does it connect with this truth and reality that Jesus actually suffered when tempted? See, many of us in this room, we track with this idea that God is 
in Jesus, just this God who doesn't feel anything, this God who is numb to temptation, this God who just walks past things and is just floating on air. And then Jesus kind of hoverboards everywhere that he goes. He's just rolling around like this and he's not facing or feeling anything. Like he never wants to smack anybody. He never gets frustrated. He never wants to look a little bit longer than he should, that, that Jesus feels none of those things. And to do that is to make Jesus a downgraded God of the God he actually was. He, he is either in your theology, a hundred percent man or he's not. And far too long, we've swung the pendulum all the way to 100% God, and we miss out on a God who can relate to what we go through. And all for Hebrews is trying to kind of hit that pendulum and swing it back to the other side and go, whoa, 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 he knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to want to punch somebody in the throat. He knows what it's like to want to, want to eat. He has all those carbs and all that fish right there. Like he knows what it's like to want to eat all that bread. Like he knows, he knows the temptation and he's felt them. And so when it says that he suffered, it's actually the same Greek word where we get the term passion, where it's not just this suffering for the sake of um, self, um, self-control. It's not just suffering for the sake of, ah, I just don't wanna go through this. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, it's my cross to bear. That's not just what it means. It's this suffering to feel the weight and the heaviness. So it says that Jesus felt the full weight of the trials and of the temptation that this world can offer. Now, when we think about this, sometimes again, we in our, in our world, when we think about how can somebody help me, we think I've got my own mistakes, I've got my own things that I've fallen on and the problems that I've done, like if my marriage is falling apart, I maybe, yeah, yeah it's one thing if my marriage is falling apart to go and talk to the person who's had the perfect marriage and they just always get along and the husband just always unloads the dishwasher and we always load it perfect and everything in their marriage is just sunshine and rainbows all the time. Like most of us, when we're trying to go get counsel and advice, we don't go to that person. We go like, they don't get what it's like to be me. Same thing with addicts. Like if you've struggled with alcoholism, the person you wanna go try to get to help out of alcoholism is the person who had it worse than you did. And that's how we think in our own way. And many times that's what becomes a barrier for us to get Jesus to help us in our temptation because we go, oh, yeah, he's perfect. He doesn't know what it's like to, to have that kind of boss like I've got. Yeah, he's perfect, but he doesn't know what it's like to have been an eight-year-old boy to pull out a sock, uh, a sock drawer and find a Playboy magazine in there and struggle with lust for the rest of my life. He doesn't know what that was like. Joseph didn't have that in his house. He doesn't know what it's like to be where I'm at, to go through what I'm going through. But I would say, be very careful to put the way that the world operates as a prerequisite on the one who created the entire world. Track with me on this. When we sin, there's a metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses, and he talks about going against the wind. The way he explains it, to help us understand that no, Jesus, because he didn't sin, he can actually relate to and help us more than anybody else. The way he explains it is this. Imagine um, you go through life and in life, there's this perpetual wind that is blowing against you that is the wind, the force of sin and temptation. What happens for most of us are really, what happened for every one of us in our life, we felt some of the wind of temptation 
that made us want to lay down, to not feel that force pushing against us. And you know what I'm talking about. That, that, that thing in you where like, man, it's right there. And you're in that moment of temptation and your ears start to get a little sweaty and you get, you know, you just start to feel that rising up and you're like, mm, and you're just, you're trying to twit. You know, you're like, you're like, you're like, you're like, you're like, you're like wanting to like do the thing. You know what I'm talking about? Well, most of us in our life, this is what happened. And, and let's just fast forward through childhood. Yeah, you probably sinned in your childhood. You know, we're gonna baptize, you know, a teenager and a, and a little kid. And the reason we are is because we believe they have sinned, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, but let's fast forward through that so, so that we can make sure we're all on the same page. Maybe you made it to adolescence perfect, which you didn't. But let's just say you did, all right? <laughs> you get to high school, okay? And then the weight of all those like grown-up kind of sins, they start hitting you, right? Because now you got a grown-up body with grown-up hormones and grown-up estrogen and grown-up testosterone. You start feeling all of those things. And what happens is that weight, and you felt this, it becomes something that blows against you so hard that you just, we lay down and we give in. And we surrender to that. And we're just like, okay, the only way I don't feel this anymore is if I lay back. I lay in. And this is where we get. And sin knocks us on our butt because we give in to it because I don't want to feel that temptation. I don't want to feel that pressure anymore. I give in. And what happens sometimes in our life is usually we get like to this place where we're like, okay, I'm going to get myself back up. And usually we get about to right here. We don't get on our feet and we get, and we get knocked back. But let me explain it to you like this. That's where we're at in life. Feel the way of temptation, lay down. We give in. I don't want to continue to walk against the wind. Jesus is, the, is, is also one who came here experienced life, was born like we're born, goes through what we go through, lived life from birth all the way to a 33-year-old who died, murdered on a tool of Roman crucifixion, okay? But as he goes, he is ultimate perfection. He has not sinned yet. And what we sometimes fail to realize is that same wind that blew against you as a teenager in the backseat of a Honda Accord is the same exact wind that is blowing against him his entire life. That same wind to lust, that same wind to lie, that same wind to be greedy, that same wind to pride blows against his life the entire time. Now you gave up on it and you laid down at seven or eight when you've probably realized it for the very first time. But what we see in Jesus is the son of God and the son of man who walks through and takes every bit that that wind can blow against him and lives his entire 33 years against the wind. So who has experienced temptation more? The one who gave up at seven or the one who made it to 33? The one who made it to 33. He's experienced it to its uttermost because he went through it perfectly. So he's able to help and not just on top of the temptation side, also the trial side. Track whatever trial that you've been through. Jesus has been through something radically similar. If you read through the gospels, you see a really messed up life. Jesus more often than not, or more likely than not, was not allowed to even be at school with other kids because of the questions around who's your daddy? You know what I'm talking about? You know, word gets around and they're going, oh yeah. Holy Spirit, baby Jesus. Yeah, we, 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 you know, Mary's out there. That's, I mean, again, th these are the things. Like people aren't buying, oh yeah, yeah, the Holy Spirit got her pregnant. And so his family is like that black sheep in the neighborhood family. Jesus, as he grows up, he is then ostracized by his whole family. His family abandons him. He's got already coming from this, you know, podunk place of Nazareth. He's got people, when he shows up, he shows up on the scene, people are like, well, what good can come out of Nazareth? He experienced racism as he's grown up and experienced these things. He's the son of God and son of man. 
but he's experiencing these things. He has his best, best friends betray him, turn their back on him, abandon him. He's completely, he lives his entire life completely misunderstood. I guarantee he's felt the loneliness. I guarantee he's felt the anxiety. The Bible tells us the night before he's betrayed, he's out in the garden and he is, he is so anxious. He is so fearful that he is literally sweating drops of blood. He's felt not just the temptation, he's also felt the trial. He's seen it up close and personal. And as one, back to our verse, who has suffered when facing the temptation and facing the trial, that is what enables him to be one who is able to help and praise God that he is able to help. And we need this because regardless of what you think, in how you feel about yourself. I've been here too, and you, you've probably experienced this. When you're going through something, you think you're the only person in the world who's struggling with what you're struggling with. Nobody knows what it's like to be me. And sometimes that's because you start trying to share your story and what's going on with somebody, and somebody gives you like a list of seven cliche answers, and you're like, you have no idea. I don't want to, I, don't, I, would, I would never share anything with you before because you told me, well, it's always darkest before the dawn. I'll pray for you, brother. You didn't even do the due diligence to actually pray for me in the moment when I shared the thing. You said, I'll be praying for you. I'll add you to my prayer list. And you left. I'll never share anything again. We've been there. Many of you experienced that at churches. But the difference between what we experience between humans and what we can experience through Jesus is he actually knows it in full and he's actually able to help because he truly does know what it's like and because he truly has suffered through it. He's not just one who is able to help with sympathy, like, oh man, stinks to be human. He's like, oh yeah, I know. I was human. I know what that feels like. I know what puberty was like. I know what crazy family members were like. I know what crazy, you know, the equivalent of coworkers, my disciples, like I know what it's like. I've been there. I've suffered through that. And for a lot of us, what, what happens is trial and temptation takes us into this pit. It takes us into a place where we begin to isolate ourselves out from God. And maybe you've never put these two and two together, but many times this is how it occurs. This is how it's occurred in my life and, and maybe how it's occurred in yours to where trial and temptation leads to more of a deeper pit and you just continue to shovel yourself in. And maybe some of you, you feel like that's where you're at right now where you would say, man, I just feel like I'm digging my own grave. See, if Satan can't get you to have something in your life that's just that perpetual form of temptation that you continue to fall to and you feel a giant sense of shame for, what Satan will do instead is allow you in life to experience a plethora of trials. Things just continue to go wrong. We can't get pregnant. I can't find a spouse. Divorce happened. Kids are prodigal as all get out. My body is failing away. Parents didn't love me. I was uh, raped or molested as a child. Like all these, he'll allow trials to happen in our life. And what he does in the midst of trials is he leverages trials for the sake of us succumbing to temptation. Because what Satan knows is most of the time that he can get a child of God saying these words, it's not supposed to be this way. That, those words right there sets an alarm off in the gates of hell. When, 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 the, when the realm of hell hears a human say, it's not supposed to be that way, they get fired up. They say, okay, that's a person 
who is so susceptible because what happens for most of us is our disappointments with God become an excuse to be disobedient to God. We, we take our disappointment and we go, Man, if God really loved me, this would never be happening. If God really loved me, never put me in this place where these needs aren't being met and everything else. And, and so, man, if God really loved me, he would do this. And because he's not, I'm gonna go find it somewhere else. And we use our disappointments about God for reasons to succumb to temptation and be disobedient to him. And Satan is laughing, laughing all the way. Think about this story in the Old Testament where somebody got this right, actually to give you like a actual story where you can see it. You guys remember uh, Joseph? Joseph was his father's favorite son, which is bad parenting advice, but uh, he had a favorite and Joseph was it. <clears throat> he hooks Joseph up with this really cool coat and his brothers hate him for it. They can't say anything nice about him. One day they decide, well, let's just kill him. And so they decide to toss him in this cistern, giant well, and they just toss big guy down in there. And then later on, they're like, you know what? We shouldn't just let him die. Let's get some money off this guy. And so they decide to sell him into slavery. Well, he ends up getting enslaved. He gets bought by this guy named Potiphar. Potiphar buys him and Potiphar, uh, apparently, he's the governor of, you know, he's, he's, a really, he's a really high ranking guy in Pharaoh's court, he's an Egyptian guy. He gets Joseph, Joseph is his slave. He's working at his house. He's in basically, Joseph is the one who's in charge of managing his household. Well, also at Potiphar's household is his cougar wife and she's, <laughs> She's got some needs and she sees Joseph. And the Bible tells us some things about Joseph. One of the things it tells us about Joseph is that he was a well-built, handsome young man. And she sees him and she's like, rawr. And like, she's, <laughs> and it tells us over and over again that she tries to make these advances against Joseph. Now, this is where Joseph, again, he got a lot of, he got some things wrong, but this is one of the things he gets right. We, in that situation, most of the time we go, God, where have you been in my life? My brothers hated me. My father did some stupid stuff that got me hated. They threw me in a well, ended up in slavery. And here I am, I was supposed to be the son of your patriarch. I was supposed to be one of the sons in the lineage of Abraham, more than the sand on the seashore guy. I'm in that line of family. And here I am enslaved in Egypt. I'm so disappointed in how you've done this. This God, if there was ever a God worth abandoning, it's the one who's abandoned me. So Potiphar Cougar lady, you love me, you're attracted to me, you want me. Doesn't seem like God wants anything to do with me. Sure, when's he get home? That's how, that's, that, that is story after story after story after story of our lives. We let our disappointments become excuses for disobedience. I have them in my life, you have them in your life. And Satan laughs all the way. And this is why we're crazy if we don't, run with everything we have to the one who is able to help, who is actually able to help. Because look, <laughs> this whole stuff down here, you don't have the self-control to get out of situations like this. And let me just debunk a myth about self-control. Self-control is not an unlimited resource, fellas. This is why you can go through work and be patient and not judo chop anybody in the pharynx. Okay, but then you get home and some kid that's your offspring says something and you're just, you just get them. Like, you know, maybe you don't judo chop in the throat, you whoop the butt or you blow up, blow a gasket. It's not because you're super angry at the kid. It's because you've completely ran out of self-control. You don't have any left. 
You haven't gone back to the new mercies that are available to you every morning and replenished that self-control. This is why we have to have the help of our Savior, Jesus. So he says he's able to help those who are being tempted. So let's talk about those who are being tempted. Again, that's all of us. So let's ask the question. If all of us in the room are the ones who are being tempted, then who is doing the tempting? If you've got, a, if you got a, a Bible, you can go to James chapter one, verse 13 and 15. If not, just listen. I want you to listen and try to find who is the one who tempts us. We're gonna figure out who doesn't first and then maybe figure out who does. James 1, 13 through 15. Again, we're talking about temptation. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So right off the bat, we get from this passage, God is not the one who's doing the tempting. God may test you, but God's not tempting you. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. So let's, even that verse is kind of like, well, who does the tempting? Now, again, we can use some other passages to understand this truth and reality that Jesus is the one who's tempting us. But what is in play in this passage? our own evil desires. So, so track with me here in regards to knowing how your temptation works. Everybody in this room, you have certain things that Satan could entice you with that he wouldn't work with me. I'm not enticed by the things that you're enticed with. Those are weird. And you're not enticed by the things that I'm enticed by. You're going, that's weird. Nobody's into that. And you're like, yeah, that's how he knows us though. And so what he does is he knows we still have these broken, fallen flesh that's continued to die away as our flesh is being crucified and we're being raised up with Christ and it is his spirit living and active through us. But in the meantime, he knows the sanctification process is happening and we're not all the way sanctified. And so what he does is he tempts us, he entices us, and he tries to get us in our unique ways that we will fall to mess up and jack up what it means to truly be a child of God so that we don't experience sonship. So we don't experience what it means to be a daughter of Christ. So then the question becomes, well, if that's who's doing the tempting, that is Satan working with our broken flesh, why? Here's why. <laughs> why does Satan tempt you? More than Satan hates you, he hates God. He absolutely hates the father. And I think one of the main reasons he hates the father is he has no idea why God loves you and me. You know, most of the time, the things that people hate the most are the things that they can't understand. And I just think Satan, this Lucifer fallen angel who's seen God in all his glory and then looks at us who burn our mouths on hot pockets. It's like, what are you, why? Like, why them? You know, they can't get it right for 30 minutes. Like, why them? Why Jesus for them? He can't, I don't think he understands it. And so because he hates the God he can't understand, he rebels and his pride against the God he can't understand. He knows that he cannot hurt God. He cannot kill God. He cannot, he has rebelled against God. He got kicked out of heaven. So in order to try to do everything he can against that God, he does the things against the ones who God loves the most, us. And that's why he tempts you. Because again, his whole purpose and point is to get you to the end of life and have a big old file. So, because he knows if I can get you tempted, then I can get you sinning. And if I can get you sinning and never meeting a savior, I can turn death into a doorway to damnation to where you experience nothing but what I'm dealing with down here. And you never experience what's going on in the kingdom of heaven. 
You never experienced the, the glory. You never experienced the adulation of the kingdom of God. You never were able to lock eyes with the Savior, the Father, to experience who is this Holy Spirit. You'll miss out on all that because you wanted a few moments of lasting pleasure down here on earth. And that's why he's like, I got you. I got you. And I hate you. And I'm going to continue to do everything I can to manipulate and take advantage of you. So the way Satan works, I want to talk about that a little bit here. If you've got a Bible... Uh, go way back there to the back <clears throat> to the book of Revelation. I want you to see something. In Revelation 12, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named John, he's an apostle, he's writing this at the end of his life. He gets this vision of what the end is going to be like, how it all is going to wrap up as far as this earth is concerned and what it's gonna look like as it continues on into eternity. We call this apocalyptic literature. We call this Armageddon's type of stuff. This is what he's saying is the vision that he gets about what's gonna happen at the end. Now, I don't wanna get caught up in all of that stuff right now. I want you to just see what John, under the influence of Jesus, identifies Satan as and what he labels that Satan is actually doing. Check this out. It says, and I heard a loud voice, this is John talking about hearing a loud voice. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, that's Satan, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses, this is, okay, this is what he is, this is what he does, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Let's, before we get into this awesome stuff down here, let's hang out right here. Because this is what he's doing, not just at the end, but it's what I believe he's doing right now. He is the accuser. And what he's doing right now is he's making accusations against you. He's living to accuse you. And this is how he works. Track with me. Pre-sin, Satan works with what we saw in James. He works to entice. Another word for entice is he works through temptation. He comes down, he says, ooh, press that button. Get an extra thousand dollars back on them taxes. Nobody's ever going to know. Press that button, girl. He, he, he says, okay, I gave you some juicy gossip. Tell the group tonight at small group. That'll be the prayer request. Well, I just know so-and-so's marriage is kind of going through it right now. Y'all just, it's unspoken, but I just spoke half of it out loud in front of all of y'all. <laughs> He, he sets up all the temptation, okay? And that's what he does pre-sin. Hey, man, no, nobody's, nobody's home. You got high-speed internet. He sets it all up, makes it all look purpose. And then, then in your mind, this is how it works, guys, you know this. He gives you a 10-point thesis of why this is the absolute best decision. Why you, track with me here, you've heard this, why you deserve this. Why this, if you don't get this, it would be as if God is holding out on you and then he gets you to bite hook, line, and sinker, and you fall to the temptation. Now, pre-temptation, he is tempter. Or pre-sin, he is tempter. Once you sin, changes roles. Then he becomes accuser. Ew. That is disgusting. How could, how could you take this money that God has given you, lie about it. I bet you're gonna tithe on that liar money that you got right there from lying on your taxes. 
How, how could you take your wife out on Valentine's Day, say all those things that you said to her, and still have those thoughts about the person online? How can you show up and do dads and donuts, and then to the very same kid, call them those names? You're terrible. That's just sick. You're such a, you're a terrible father. You're a terrible wife. No wife is going to be still trying to figure out what, no good wife is looking at what her high school fling has got going on in his life now. You're disgusting. He deserves better than you. She deserves better than you. The kids deserve better than that. I bet you should stop going to church altogether because that's where you feel the most ashamed. And then to lump it on even more, he goes, starts talking about God. God, God can't do anything with you until you get that figured out. You're a broken case, you're a lost cause. And see, this is, this is where friends, lovingly, we are absolutely idiots. If we think that we can get on our own and stand between his temptations and his accusations, and just make it. Like, you have no chance. And that's why, that's why you have to have a Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 Savior who experienced all the things, who suffered all the things, was tempted in all the things, went through all the trials so that you can be helped from this rock in a hard place. All right, so he, he gets us out of this. And here's what's wild. I didn't even get to the good part of this verse yet. He says that they have overcome. They have not even overcome, I love the word, conquered. Like it's a kick you in the throat kind of word. He has conquered, they, not, not just they, who, they guys. It would be cool. And we could all get on the same board and click our heels together if it just said Jesus. And woo, Jesus. But it says they. You're in the they if you're in the Christ. That's, that's awesome. Now, look what, look what it says. Okay, so they overcome by the blood of the lamb. Hip, 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 hooray. They overcame by the blood of the lamb. Jesus died for the sins. Praise God. He died for the sins. But what's wild is Jesus died for the sins, but that doesn't make you one. If Jesus just dies for the sins, you are not necessarily yet one who is free from the accusation. You become one who is free from the accusation when uh, by the blood of the lamb, you now stand up and give a what in court? A testimony. That used to be who I was, Satan. I used to struggle with that. I used to sin in that way. I used to look at those things. I used to lie. I used to steal. I used to do that, but that's not who I was. Who I was right there was covered by the blood of the lamb. That may be who I used to be, but that's not who I am in Christ. And so the case is closed. That's where we, he's demolished. And that's, that's, that's what I love about it. And, and again, this is our future, guys. Like if you're in the family of Christ, this is your future. Your future, your identity is an overcomer because, and this is why you have to be an overcomer, because you have an accuser. Now, if this verse is true, and I don't think this is just what Satan is doing towards the end in the ninth inning, I think this is what he's doing right now in whatever inning we're in. He's accusing right now. And it says, how often is he doing it? Day and night. Wouldn't it just be like our God who knows that Satan is given accusation day and night to set up Jesus to do some of this kind of stuff, 
to be able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, track with me, he always lives to make intercession for them. So what does God use to combat a, an accuser and Satan who is making accusations against you all day, all night? A Jesus who lives to make intercession. I'll be here all day, Satan. I'll be there all night. A lot of times we forget. A lot of times we go, okay, Jesus, he died for my sins. He rose from the grave. What's he doing right now though? Like he paid for my sins. Where's he at now? What's he doing now? This. Satan, just because Satan is a defeated enemy does not mean he has stopped making accusations even against those who are in Christ. That's why those of you who are in Christ, you still sin and you still feel what? Shame. And that's why you have an intercessor. But what's wild is you don't just have an intercessor, guys. You have something even a step further. Look what the apostle um, John says. He says, you have an advocate. Check this out. John chapter two, uh, first John chapter two, verse one. John's talking, he says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. <laughs> but he knows better. <laughs> he knows them. He's like, but if you do sin, because you are. If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's picking up on the same thing the author of Hebrew was. And not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's like him going, this is John writing to his church, the people he was trying to encourage. And he was doing it with you in mind when he says, but for the sins of the whole world, like all the people who are gonna come into the world after I'm dead and gone, it's all them too. And we have an advocate. Advocate is different than an intercessor. Intercessor is one who stands in between two parties and intercedes on the other's behalf. Advocate is one who lines up on the complete other side. And so what this passage is saying is in Jesus, we have an advocate. The Greek word there is paraclete. It's where we also get what we talk about a lot of times in the, in the Holy Spirit. We have this advocate, this parakletos in Jesus who comes to our side and says, I have been where you've been. I've walked where you've walked and I'm able to help. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the temptation, I came down and I got where you are. He didn't just reach down in the pit and go, yeah, come on, I'll help you. I'm, I'm, I have never been in a pit like that. What he does when he says he's his advocate, it means he comes to our side, which means Jesus goes, okay, I don't really um, want you to get freaked out, but I'm, I'm getting in there with you and I'm gonna come down and, I'm gonna get in the pit of all the sin and the shame and the trial and I'm gonna be in here with you. And because I have conquered all of this, it doesn't stain me anymore. It doesn't hurt me anymore. And because of that, if you'll let me, I'll help you. But what Jesus won't do is grab you by the ankle and dunk, 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 let your head bounce off the stairs as he pulls you out of the pit. Like he's like, I need you to, I need you to hop on my back. I need, to, I need you to be with me. I'm gonna help you out of this, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, force you out of this. And so maybe you're there and you're going, okay, well, like how in the world do I actually experience this Jesus who is supposedly so helpful? It's a great question. How do I experience this real life in the moment, true help from Jesus in the midst of my temptation? I would say two places two ways right now in this very moment, you can experience Jesus helping you through the Bible and through the body of, the, of Christ, the church. Through the Bible, which is the word of God, and through the body, which is the family of God. Here's why I say that. 
Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he said, if you abide in me, you will bear much what? Fruit. And then he's talking about good fruit there. But then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what we need to understand is he's not saying the only way you can bear fruit is if you abide in me. Because your life will bear fruit regardless if you're abiding in Jesus or not. It's just determined on whether it's fruit of the flesh or fruit of the spirit. We see Paul expound on this a little bit more through the letters he writes to the churches and he walks through the fruit of the spirit, but also the fruit of the, uh, fruit of the flesh. And he talks about lust, envy, orgies. He talks about pride. He talks about the shame. He talks about all these terrible things that are the fruit of the flesh. So here's what you need to understand and know, your life is gonna bear some kind of fruit. It's either gonna be the bearing the fruit of the flesh or it's gonna bear the fruit of spirit. And he says, the only way to bear the fruit of the spirit is to abide in me. And so the question then becomes, if I'm told to abide in Jesus, where does Jesus reside? I want to reside where Jesus is. I want to abide where Jesus is. Where is Jesus? I I don't think the Bible uh, gives us a where's Waldo on this, where it's hard to find. Where is Jesus? He is in the word. If you want to have an encounter with Jesus, read his word. If you want to know who he is, read his word. His word makes it very clear. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you don't think that helps with temptation, you're crazy. He says, the word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. How do I navigate through the darkness that is here on earth? Well, I have to have the word lighting my path. I have to have light shine to show up and show me what is actually happening here in this world and how wicked and broken and fallen it actually is. And then the body. So if I'm gonna experience Jesus helping me, I've got to be where Jesus is. He's in the word. And then along with that, he's in this body of believers here. Now that should make you a little bit nervous, but a little bit excited about potentially what could happen. John 14, 23, Jesus is talking to disciples and he says these words. He says, if anyone loves me, they will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. So where's Jesus and God at? And anybody who loves God. And I hope this church is full of people who love God. And if that's the case, then this church is full of people who have all of the Father and all of the Son inside of them. And so if I wanna bump into the Father and His help, if I wanna bump into Jesus and His help, the best place I have to, the best chance I have for that happening in my life is through the local church. This is why you can't just go find a God in a deer stand. This is why you can't go get Him on a golf course. This is why you can't just pray in your car. This is why Jesus instituted the body of Christ, the local church, because he knew that the only hope you had in temptation, your best bet was his word and his people. That's why I said in Galatians 2.20, Paul's talking, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the last one I'll give you to just kind of prove this over and over again 
Hebrews 1, 23 and 25. Or this is not Hebrews 1. I think it's Hebrews 10. Forgot a zero. Hebrews 10, 23 and 25. Again, we'll eventually get there. But the pastor to the Hebrew church is making again the point for the importance of being together as a body so that we can resist the temptation, so that we can have Jesus help us. And he says these words. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now listen to this. Let us, the body, consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is drawing near. So I let's talk about these two things. And I would just, this is me trying to be Dr. Trent a little bit here and giving you a little bit of a spiritual diagnosis. If in your life, you feel like you are continually falling to temptation, you are weak when it comes to temptation. I would be willing to bet it is due in large part to a deficiency in one of those two areas, either the Bible or the body. Either you spend next to no time in the word or you spend next to no time with the body of Christ. And I wish I could give you some other thing. I wish it could be one or the other. I wish you could just show up to church and just be like, I'm at church. Every time the doors are open, blah, 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 I'm here. And then you never have to read your word. You never have to get up early. You never have to pray in the car. You never have to do any of those things. But hear me, it is a both and. Because you can't be the other side and go, well, I just spend all my time. I just read my Bible. I just study. I just pray. I just spend 14 hours a week in my prayer closet. But do I serve at church? No. Do I have a small group? No. Am I discipling anybody? No. Is anybody discipling me? No. But I have a great quiet time every week. And you wonder, why am I still falling to temptation? I've been praying for hours and hours. I've been reading every book of the Bible. Why am I still falling to temptation? You need the book. You need the body. You need his word. You need his church. Because that's where you'll truly experience the help that he can give you. And today we're getting ready to see two, uh, two girls get baptized and receive communion. And I think it's just such a fitting fitting way to wind down our day because I believe that it is that combination of both the words of Christ and the body of Christ that led them to this decision. And that's what, when they work together, that's what happens. And my prayer is that from this moment forward for both of their lives, they are less and less tempted because they have realized that the power, life-changing power of Jesus is best experienced through his word and through his church. And today, as you, as, as people, get ready to watch that in just a second, we're gonna, before that, receive communion. And communion, again, is this place where we go, okay, Jesus, your body was broken, your blood was poured out. And in this communion, I'm brought into being someone who can truly receive the help that you make available. And the first point of surrender out of the sin of the deep pit that you're in is surrendering saying, Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the savior. The gospel is true. I could not get myself out of this pit without your help. And it is that broken body is that poured out blood and our faith in it. That is step one of us being helped out whatever we may have got ourselves into. And so my prayer for, for you today is that you come to this moment with Jesus and you You'll let him be your advocate. You'll let him silence the voice of the accuser in your mind. And you see what he's been, see what has been done for you. And you let that leave you in awe and wonder as you commune with him today.
Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing, what you will do, and what is yet to come. Meet with us today.